Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much-beloved radio syndicates or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter, and we will be joined later on by Lauren Latour to discuss the concept of net zero. And uh, first, we're going to have a little intro And then we're going to have a bunch of environmental news items. So first, allow me to say that COVID-19 might seem relatively under control in our quote-unquote dominion of Canada. But in much of the world, like India, Bangladesh, Brazil, the Philippines, and Eastern Europe, and most definitely in that unspeakable behemoth just south of us, the pandemic is still raging. And in places like Yemen and Peru, it's been burdening healthcare systems to the point of collapse. We Canadians are, of course, still profiting from the bombing of children in Yemen, having sold weapons just recently to the Saudis. It's also perfectly possible that Canada could see another surge of the disease at any time. And as Canadians, it's uh, always important to watch closely what happens in the U.S., since we could easily fall victim to the cultural and economic magnetism of its madness and find ourselves sucked into the vortex of its doom. The justice system in Utah, for instance, is so hideously thin-skinned and fearful of its own populace that Black Lives Matter protesters who splashed red paint and broke some windows near the DA's office in July could get life in prison for their mischief even as gangster police across the country continue to murder black people indiscriminately. Trump is actively trying to rig the elections in his favor now, since the, he has been attacking mail-in voting, saying any result from mail will be fraudulent, and that the Postal Service can't handle it, and now the new head of the Postal Service, who is allied with Trump and has been dismantling it from the inside, has just recently caused chaos by shuffling around 23 executives. Finally, millions on millions of Americans are out of work and probably out of aid and maybe soon out of a home since Trump signed an executive order that will delay financial aid, possibly by months, by making states foot a quarter of the bill. As American Marxian economist Richard Wolff told R.J. Eskow of the Zero Hour on the 3rd of August regarding the stock market's second quarter returns, quote, This must have been what it was like in the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the British Empire. It's not just that things are falling apart, it's that the people in the middle of it insist to one another that everything's okay. The pandemic didn't do this kind of damage in most other countries in the world, with the exception being countries alarmingly like the United States. Even in the Great Depression, things did not go this fast, this far down, as what we have now. We're looking at a century of coping with the consequences of something even worse than the Great Depression. And how many more viruses are coming down the pipe? How much is global warming producing this sequence? Are we prepared to stop denying how fundamental capitalism has collapsed in our time, and therefore what kinds of basic questions ought to be asked if we have any kind of hope of climbing out of the hole this system has dug for us? R.J. Eskow then defines capitalism as, quote, an ideology that, has, uh, that says the way to run society 
is by allowing the forces of wealth and the types of people that are driven to accumulate wealth to govern everything we do. Wolf then argues that workers in the U.S. are going to lose benefits and wages and be forced to work longer and harder hours because so many people will be out of work that employers can just pick from whoever is willing to accept their terms. Thus, in order to keep reaping profits, employers will squeeze their workers even harder because, quote, we allowed everything we need and want to depend on the profit-driven decisions of minority. That's how we got here. It worked for a while. We all acceded to it. We all assumed it was normal. It was natural. It was routine. It was just the way it was. Maybe capitalism is over. We're going to have to put we're going to have to put people to work because they need to work, and we're going to have to give people income because that's what a reasonable society does for people. Give them the income they need to be decent to one another, to raise their children, to be members of a living community. All of that has to come first. If it can make a profit, fine. If it can't, fine. That's not anymore the bottom line. He goes on to argue that it isn't even correct that private capitalism exists in the U.S. anymore, since corporations keep receiving almost zero-interest loans from the government. Therefore, the U.S. government, instead of giving resources to people directly, is giving resources to businesses who are then supposed to provide resources to people. But of course, their only motive, essentially, is generating profits for themselves. I think ultimately what's described here is part of the reason why market-based solutions to the climate crisis will not be enough. As Dave mentioned at the second half of the show, we'll be doing a deep dive with Lauren into net zero, which is a concept that heavily relies on offsetting of carbon, which is almost always a market-based approach to allow for companies and countries to buy their way out of emissions while still pulling fossil fuels out of the ground. And ultimately, that is what actually has to stop. You know, capitalism runs on pulling non-renewable resources out of the ground and turning them into a profit for a few, and then hoping it trickles down to the rest of us. And every part of that is inherently at odds with how ecosystems work. And so if, if we are able to survive on this planet, or if we're going to be able to survive on this planet, that's what we must once again become a part of a circular sustainable ecosystem i know if i'm generous at heart i don't need recognition the way i'm rewarded well that's god's decision turning now to the point of this program namely environmental news and commentary the numerous man-made wildfires in the amazon that sparked international social media uproar last year are probably going to be worse this year since it's been even drier and Jair Bolsonaro has brought in the army to deal with it, even though they have no training in preventing such fires. The environment ministry agents who used to do this work did have such training, but they have mostly been laid off by Bolsonaro in favor of people who don't know what they're doing. Many of the fires come from piles of trees that have been chopped down and laid out to dry before being burned on purpose to build illegal soy or or cattle farms. The Washington Post reports that 1.1 million acres are already felled and waiting to be burned. Meanwhile, 
uh, fires were already up 28% in July compared with last year. CNN quotes uh, soil and land use researcher Tasso Azevedo as saying, quote, the deforestation keeps rising for 14 months in a row, and all this material is ready to burn. The conditions are there to the tragedy we feared of mixing fire, smoke, and COVID-19. People have evacuated the Aosta Valley in Italy because 500,000 cubic meters of ice could very well fall on an alpine resort from a melting mountain glacier, while just recently on Ellesmere Island in Nunavut, the last completely intact ice shelf in the Canadian Arctic has collapsed after losing, as Global News reports, over 40% of its capacity of its area in only two days at the end of July. The ice that has disintegrated is uh, as large as some cities, and its disappearance also means the end of the last known Epishelf Lake in the Northern Hemisphere, which is a body of fresh water contained by ice that floats over the ocean. Glaciologist Luke Copland told Reuters that the Canadian Arctic has been 5 degrees Celsius above the 30-year average this summer, which is unprecedented. Here in Ontario, the Doug Ford government is trying to skip over key aspects of the environmental impact assessment for a huge new highway that they'd uh, like to build over part of the Green Belt and something known as the White Belt. The highway, Highway 413, would pave over various farmlands, forests, and rivers, turning southern Ontario into even more of the asphalt desert it already is. According to Environmental Defense, quote, Back in 2018, this same project was cancelled by the province because it would cost billions of dollars and do massive environmental damage while saving drivers just 30 seconds off their commute. BlogTO reports that the highway would, quote, pave over a couple thousand hectares of prime agricultural land and cut through the headwaters of the Credit and Humber rivers, crossing rivers and streams approximately 53 times in total. Public consultation is open until August 22nd. The island of Mauritius, which is near Madagascar, is trying to pump all the oil out of a grounded oil tanker before it breaks in half and releases all of its oil into the delicate ecosystem the island relies on for its food and its livelihood. The vessel is owned by the Japanese company Nagashiki Shipping and has already leaked over 1,000 tons of fuel into the area that includes coral reefs and lagoons, as well as the precious shoreline that the island needs for tourism and nourishment. Greenpeace has said that the spill will be one of the worst ecological crises to ever hit Mauritius. As part of a COVID-19 economic recovery plan, Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist government plans to auction off 4,200,000 acres of ancient forest in central India to make way for 40 new coal fields that are sitting on around 5 billion metric tons of coal. The coal is 40% ash and therefore among the most polluting coal in the world. The move will also shift the Indian coal industry towards privatization and probably enrich business leaders who are friends with Modi.
Hannah Alice Peterson, writing for The Guardian, quotes Umeshwar Singh Amra, who is uh, Adivasi, as saying, quote, If more mining happens, everything will change. The natural resources will be gone. Our way of life will disappear. Everything will be under threat. We are tribal people. We cannot go out and live in the cities, and no amount of money can ever compensate us. There is no forest like this in the world. Cut it down, and it can never be replaced. And in green tech news, red bricks are being outfitted with nanofibers that can store electricity, meaning buildings could eventually possibly be built with bricks that are also batteries. The technology could potentially maybe even come to replace lithium-ion batteries in who knows how many years. And finally, in U.S. politics, vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris and AOC have teamed up on a new and improved climate equity bill. As Alana Cohen writes for Inside Climate News, quote, The climate legislation which has been the subject of, exp- of extensive community outreach by Harris and Ocasio-Cortez over the last year, would create an Office of Climate and Environmental Justice Accountability within the Office of Management and Budget and require the government to consider the impact of any environmental legislation or regulation on low-income communities. These breakdowns are always somewhat overwhelming, um, so I'll try to go through a, a few of them. It, the, the first I think I'll start with is that it, it pains me that we as a society seem to be failing to spend any serious time mourning or considering some of these last breaths of ecosystems. You know, it, it strikes me that, that a funeral should be held for the last completely intact ice shelf as it dies. And it, we're getting this over and over again in all across the world when you hear the last of something is lost or, you know, the fact that we're in what many people consider the sixth great extinction. And so I'm just going to give I'm just going to give a, a 10 second uh, pause of silence, at least for the at least for this ice shelf, um, because it strikes me that at least a little more time to it is deserved. It's been it's been said again and again you know, that the loss of the Amazon rainforest would be the death nail of climate action. Not to mention the fact of how many people and animals and biodiversity exists there. And yet here we are in, in a, such a short time of you know year two, I believe, of the Bolsonaro government, and we're seeing you know basically exactly that. The 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 world has to find a way to to protect this land um or or to reverse this one one way I'll just throw out there is eating less beef especially uh because it because of how much of a tropical forest is is bulldozed for beef consumption but there's so much more to be done uh holding the bolsonaro government for the many horrors that it's currently committing and if you see them online, there's been sh- they've been shared at least in some timelines and on mine. Uh, 
any of the stories related to this oil oil tanker in Mauritius, because in any other year this would be a major major story. You know these oil sto- these oil spills, when not swallowed by the absolute garbage fire that is 2020, you know this is truly devastating, and then realize the connection when protests begin to ramp up against the Trans Mountain expansion here in Canada, because. The Transmountain expansion will require a vast increase of tanker traffic off the coast of BC, often in places where it is quite dangerous for these tankers to be. And with these types of of, of issues, you know, whether it's a spill or a, or a tanker capsizing, the question is not if, but when. And if I can get a little. Um, more, you know, annoyed or angry. Um, this, it's rare anyone can bother me as much as Doug Ford managed to bother me, but this highway should be protested as strongly as any type of other oil infrastructure that should get protested. You know, this is it's it's you know there's still oil moving across the way whether it's in a car or in a pipeline you know it is still the same it is still creating the same amount of emissions and must must be stopped if i can encourage you uh environmental defense currently has a petition right now to stop the destructive highway 413 on their website so if you go to their website you can you can submit this and they also let you know how you can uh, connect better to the consultation, uh, which again ends in little over a week. And so, you know, because you know, it's one we are. I think we have as a society gotten better and better at at using the legal systems to fight oil infrastructure when it comes to pipelines, but oil infrastructure when it comes to moving people however they you know in their private vehicles somehow remains untouchable in the same way as you see that fact that we're still in this city that calls itself progressive rebuilding half the gardener for four billion dollars while refusing to invest in transit you know the the cult of the car remains ever present and we must find a battleground where it can be stopped and these groupings of stories so often feel like a coroner's report you know, explaining the cause of death. And I so often wonder what it is that will die. All of us, or if we're lucky, just our way of life. You know, the task before the next leader of the United States will be a vast one. And I sincerely hope that the Biden-Harris ticket lives up to her vision for climate justice, because we desperately, desperately need it. If you believe in impossible things, if you believe and we're now going to talk about the concept of net zero. So the World Resources the World Resources Institute reports that as of June 2020, 120 countries have committed themselves to working towards net zero targets through the Climate Ambition Alliance, which was called for at COP25 last year. The Net Zero Tracker reports that Suriname and Bhutan are the two countries to have already reached net zero emissions, while Sweden, the UK, France, Denmark, New Zealand, and Hungary have net zero plans already written in law, and the EU, Spain, Chile, and Fiji have proposed legislation towards that end. 
A handful of countries have written policy documents towards net zero, and the rest have net zero targets under discussion, with the vast majority of committed countries planning to achieve net zero by 2050. Net zero is also known as climate neutrality or carbon neutrality, meaning that any entity that produces net zero emissions is removing as much greenhouse gas from the atmosphere as it's emitting. This is done through efficiency, clean power, and carbon removal technologies, which can be as simple as a tree plantation. Most net zero plans, however, rely on technology that isn't ready to be deployed. Kelly Levin and Chantal Davis, using data from the IPCC, write for the World Resources Institute that if we're going to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to reach net zero, by s- net zero CO2 by 2050 and net zero greenhouse gases by between 2063 and 2068. And if we're to limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, we need to reach net zero CO2 somewhere between 2070 and 2085, and net zero greenhouse gases sometime before 2100. Uh, that same World Resources Institute article includes decarbonizing air travel as one of the ways we can reach net zero, even though there's no way to do that yet. If we take countries that have pledged net zero so far, even if all those targets are met, it still only accounts for 10% of global emissions. Yeah, so we've mentioned a bunch on the show about our concerns about this concept uh, of net zero or the idea of net zero. And over the next little bit, we'll be I'll come back to a couple different concerns. But the first one sort of relies on the que- the difference between net zero versus actually zero carbon. And that concern is caused by the fact that that zero emissions is different from net zero. And that difference is offsets. And carbon offsets have a host of problems. So when I started pulling back this sort of conversation, I'm using an article from Vox in February of this year uh, called Carbon Offset, about carbon offsets and climate change. And it estimates that the size currently of global carbon compliance offset market, market, which is basically the, the size of the market for offsets that are actually required by law. So this is off, these are offsets that are included in, say, different emissions trading schemes, is somewhere between $40 billion and $120 billion right now. And they mention three examples of carbon offsets in this article. Uh, one is buying cleaner, cleaner burning cook stoves in developing countries that reduce deforestation. The second is financing a wind turbine generator to displace fossil fuels on the power grid. And the third is, a, is getting credit for restoring a section of tropical forests. And these are just three examples. They're, they're not the full range of examples, but they're three examples that they sort of used. And the issue with all three of these is that none are guaranteed to reduce emissions long term. You know, you can imagine a world where reducing deforestation uh, with with clean burning cook stoves does not guarantee or remain there forever. And the purchase of cleaner burning cook stoves is likely to double or triple counting the same forest in that they're probably going to communities and the idea that the forest around them is only so much a forest. And so they're probably double or triple counting in those in those cases. The wind turbine generator gets credit for fossil fuels not burned, but that only works if we presume that the demand remains constant. And with the complexity of energy grid systems, determining how much wind turbine displaces you know, is rife with issues. 
And the third one of restoring a section of tropical rainforest, once again, only counts for the time that uh, that tropical rainforest exists. You could you could see yourself restoring one portion of the tropical rainforest as a nether gets cut down, and then restoring that new portion as a third portion gets restored, uh, gets cut down, and then restoring that one, allowing yourself to continue over and over again, restoring different parts of an already of, of a of a still potentially decreasing size of rainforest, all while never changing your actual original practices. You see, the, the bottom line is that anything that isn't directly keeping fossil fuels in the ground or technologically pulling carbon out of the air and putting it back in the ground in some real way, in some way, you know, is not a real solution. Lastly, before I throw it to you, Lauren, uh, one other example provided by this Vox article is about a steel mill that wants to reduce its emissions. Uh, which would t- and, and to do so would take uh, would take a significant investment in its facilities to upgrade them to allow them to cr- produce less carbon as they're creating it, and so to begin instead they invest in rebuilding a mangrove forest, which is incredible, which is an incredible carbon sink and would be far cheaper in cost in terms of reducing emissions. You know this sounds like a win-win, but that presumes that the steel company is so committed to these reductions that it's also continuing the expensive investment on top of the money it's now using to spend spending to offset uh, offset its emissions uh, using the mangrove forest and given that they've already chose they chose offsets as a cheaper option and given the the, the way that our current system incentivizes short-term growth a more likely scenario is that it takes these offsets as proof of their reductions and carries on as is and then five years down the road, a hurricane comes through, destroys the mangrove forest, pushing all of that carbon back into the atmosphere, and the steel plant is still producing the exact same emissions, meaning that the existence of the offset market has actually hampered any real action at all. And that, to me, is a central problem here. But let's start to you, Lauren. Yeah, we're going to be talking about net zero versus true or, or actual zero or just just plain zero uh, for the next little bit. So um, I'm not going to dig into anything too much, but I did just sort of in that in that sort of brief blurb that, that you gave at the top of the segment, David, you had sort of gone through a couple different countries and where they were currently at. So I did just want to provide a bit of an update there for listeners in terms of the Canadian context. Um, we, we talk a lot about how, how net zero by 2050 isn't even actually that that ambitious anymore. It's, it's, it's not necessarily going to get us to 1.5, but net zero by 2050 is what Canada has. It, it is not an official target that has been adopted at this point, but it, it is what the Trudeau government pledged to commit to during the election period recently, almost a year ago now. Um, and it's what we're starting to see mirrored um, in policy and in legislation that's coming down the pipe. So for instance, uh, the recent strategic assessment of climate change that we talked about a couple weeks ago does specifically reference a net zero by 2050 um, goal that any new projects that are being implemented uh, from an energy standpoint have to have to demonstrate or have to um, let those people who are doing assessments under like See, like see their work, show how it's going to be net zero by 2050, or at least state that it will be net zero by 2050. Um, but the worry that people have there is a worry that that I think we're going to come to touch on. Um, it's it's around what an actual definition of net zero is from a governmental standpoint, and what it means to meet net zero by 2050. Because, like I'm sure we're going to talk about, it can come down to clever accounting methods. Um, and it can mean that 
uh, yeah, net zero is nowhere close to an actual zero. Um, and that's sort of still unclear at this point. Um, from, from a sort of policy standpoint, we're, we're hoping to maybe get some clarification around what net zero means to Canadian policymakers, hopefully this fall, hopefully this winter, when we get um, we, we've been told a new nationally determined uh, contribution is coming down, is, 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 is going to be updated soon. So that's our, that's our national target. And we're hoping to get a firmer definition of what Canada means by net zero then. Um, not necessarily because we're going to be that excited about it, because it but, but because at least then we know what our parameters are that we're working within. So the World Green Building Council has joined the Advancing Net Zero Project dedicated to supporting the creation of net zero buildings and has affiliates in France, Canada, Brazil, Australia, South Africa, the US, Germany and the UK. They are also related there are also related projects in the UAE, India, Indonesia and Singapore. The initiative is quote dedicated to supporting market transition transformation towards 100% net zero carbon buildings by 2050. They write quote World, uh, the World Green Building Council recognizes that in most situations, net zero energy buildings, i.e. buildings that generate 100% of their energy needs on site, are not feasible. Therefore, buildings that are energy efficient and supply energy needs from renewable sources on site and or off site is a more appropriate target for the mass scale required to achieve Paris Agreement levels of global emissions reductions. We believe that this enormous challenge will be achieved through the coordinated efforts of business, government, and NGOs. The Canadian Builders Association, as part of this initiative, is advertising homes that are 80% more efficient than regular houses. Then we have the spectacle of major international oil companies making their own net zero pledges, which always seems absurd considering greenhouse gases are their business model. Clean energy analyst Tim Buckley is quoted by Nicholas Kuznets for Inside Climate News as saying that the top five oil companies will determine the success of the Paris Agreement. These companies are BP, Exxon, Total, Shell, and Chevron. Kuznets reports that uh, Chevron has so far pledged to slightly reduce carbon intensity of uh, its direct emissions, its natural gas production, its flaring, and its methane emissions. Even if this, its carbon intensity goes down, however, it could still increase its overall emissions by creating more product. Exxon has similarly negligible pledges. Both Exxon and Chevron's pledges are based on their 2016 levels. Shell, Total, and BP have all pledged to be net zero on all their direct emissions by 2050, uh, with both Shell and Total pledging major uh, intensity reductions by the, by the 30s and 40s, and Total pledging to be net zero on all of the emissions of its products sold in Europe by 2050 as well, meaning it would offset its indirect emissions too, at least in Europe. All these companies, of course, paint themselves as climate-friendly, with Shell, for instance, claiming last year that Netherlands drivers can drive carbon-neutral with Shell, uh, through offsetting their emissions by protecting uh, and planting trees. BP is the only company that has so far pledged to reduce its actual oil and gas production, planning by 2030 to have reduced its production by 40% of its 2019 levels and to increase its green energy investments by a factor of 10 over the same period. 
The Washington Post reports that the move will cut investor dividends in half immediately, which hurts British pension funds, but it also already immediately raised BP's share price by 7.8%. Yeah, so here we get to issue number two with, with net zero, which is that even if we ignore issues of offsets that were noted earlier, we run into a second problem which is quite simply, there are not enough offsets in the world to soak up all of the carbon that we are currently creating. You know, with each company and government that is planning on reducing its actual emissions or, or that is not planning on reducing its actual emissions, but instead to rely on offsets, we would quite simply run out of waves to, ways to offset the emissions. I mean, how many clean-burning stovetops would you need to buy, uh, buy to offset the production and then burning of 2.28 million barrels of oil. Then keep in mind that's just one company, Exxon, producing in a single day. You pretty much get the the picture pretty quickly that this is not a feasible option. But to you, Lauren. Yeah. um, And sort of building on that, another sort of silver bullet that's often looked to when we're talking about net zero and Sort of, I, I don't know. The main one of the main problems with net zero is that it, it continues this sort of idea of we don't need to worry about it right now. We'll be able to worry about it in ten years. We don't need to worry about short term targets because we have we have all this runway. We have thirty years basically to reduce our targets. Um, apologies to listeners if they can currently hear the cicadas outside of my bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the other issues, sort of beyond you, you've got your offsets, and like you said, there simply and not there simply aren't enough offsets in the entire world. To, to be able to counterbalance our emissions. Um, but the other issue um, in terms of like, again, not being a silver bullet is, is we don't have the carbon, ca- carbon capture and storage technology available to us. And it's something carbon capture and storage is specifically mentioned by the IPCC as theoretically being necessary if we're actually going to hit net zero by 2050 and keep our emissions below 1.5. But they also um, specifically reference the fact that CCS isn't, uh, viable and scalable at this point in the sense that we have the technology theoretically, but we don't know how to deploy it at a massive enough scale to save our skin at this point. And, and I was sort of, I was thinking about, you guys know, I tend to talk and think in analogies a lot of the time. And I was trying to think about an analogy that might make sense earlier this afternoon. And it, and it made me, where we are with CCS and the amount of people talk about it versus its actual viability Reminds me of if you look back at sci-fi like books and movies and comics and TV shows that came out in like mid-century in like the 1950s, 1960s, the first that came to mind were like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. And those were both really good examples of sci-fi that like didn't that, that didn't take place too far into the distant future they both happened around 1999 to 2000 was when they were set in the future and both of them were predicated on the notion that space travel would be vast it would be commercial and we would all be doing it and that was based then that was to them not totally out of out of the realm of possibility because we had gone to the moon at that point we did have astronauts and cosmonauts going up into space relatively frequently like like we still do but it's the idea that just because we have that technology just because we have that know-how doesn't mean we have the political will doesn't mean we have the the money or the resources um or 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 the the people to do it um so yes we do technically have the knowledge and the tech to 
to have carbon capture and storage at some point in the future to help us get to that net zero, but, but not at the scale that we would need to if we weren't to also pair it with hard and fast and intense carbon reductions on a very, very real scale. Um, and at that point, we're just not seeing those hard and fast reductions from most countries in the world. Yeah. And I believe last year, there was a, a story that came out that had said that the price of sequestering a ton of carbon using one of these technologies had fallen to $200 per ton, which is like, which was like, you know, which is about where people think that if we actually needed to reduce our emissions all the way down, where our price on carbon should be. But it, when you think about what the, the cost of reducing a ton of carbon, it is in almost every way, especially when you think of efficiency gains of improving buildings and stuff like that, the numbers of ways to reduce emissions that is before $200 a ton is incredible. And and what I didn't realize, what I didn't wasn't able to get information of because it was such a new technology that it hadn't done anything further, was it wasn't even clear whether or not that included the full cost accounting of the actual creation of this gigantic fan that was soaking up carbon or the cost uh, of the of powering it while it did this, right? So you know, it might have been just the just all the rest of it that led to that, and you're still not including all of the manufacturing and everything else, and so. Yeah, yeah, this is not a cheap or readily available option right now. So Bloomberg has recently reported on Microsoft and Apple's environment plans, with Apple planning to go carbon neutral by 2030, and Microsoft planning on going carbon negative by the same year. Dina Bass reported in June that Microsoft will also be spending $1 billion on a climate investment fund, mostly for carbon removal technology. Since we'll need massive uh, improvements in such technology uh, very quickly, if our society is going to continue operating in some way resembling the present, Microsoft knows that it will have to take some major risks in its investments. The company also is also trying to provide the kind of investment that will bring down the price of the technology for other companies. They are trying to pay $20 a ton uh, for the carbon they're removing. The um, carbon removal strategies could include the giant fans that suck carbon out of the air, or uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or enhanced weathering, uh, weathering being a natural process that regulates climate over many, many years as rocks break down, absorb carbon in the process, and sink into the bottom of the ocean. Apple, meanwhile, is planning to go carbon neutral by 2030, which, because it already gets almost all its energy from renewables, as pointed out by Akshat Rathi, uh, means that it is going to try to get net zero on its scope 3 emissions, which are the indirect emissions caused by the use of its products, or, and correct me if I'm wrong, the mining of its minerals. Is that also scope 3? The mining oh, yeah. of its minerals. Scope right. 3 is everything. Um, yeah, so this is so this is the one both uh, good piece of news and also goes back to actually what Lauren was saying at the top of this segment, which is the question of what net zero means in regards to accounting, because there are three ways you can account for your own emissions. Uh, mo when most companies and countries, for that matter, declare that they are going to come quote-unquote net zero, what they're referring to is scope one emissions. And these are emissions that are released directly by the entity. 
which is like, you know, if you're a, let's say if you're UPS, you know, it's the actual missions that come from your car that's the, the, or the truck that's driving around all the parcels. And but but it does not include even the say the power that is gen that is that is used by your say distribution center. If you're going to include the power that's used by your distribution center, that becomes scope two, which is you know so it, it that includes that sort of slightly wider range, and then it's very rare for for any of these organizations to really consider scope three which is the full extent of of the emissions which includes waste disposal supply chains your investments and the use of your sold sold products and this last one becomes very important when considering what quote-unquote carbon neutral pledges are from oil companies as almost none of them and i have not read bps well enough to understand but to my understanding Almost none of them actually include the emissions from actually burning the oil they're pulling out of the ground. When they say they're carbon neutral, it's carbon neutral from the production of that oil, but not actually even from the burning of it. Anyways, to you, Lauren. Yeah. So, for instance, like when we were talking about the Vista coal mine a couple weeks ago, like that's one of those things where theoretically, yes, Canada is supposed to be phasing out its use of thermal coal, but that plant was is could potentially still be allowed to continue to operate because Canada won't be the one burning the coal it'll be going offshore and then it will become China's emissions and not Canada's emissions despite the fact that the substance came from us but um but anyway yeah so it's it's questions like this and these definitions and these nitty-gritty things that that need to be sorted out before we 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 can even form a judgment on what it means for a given nation to be carbon neutral or to be working towards carbon neutrality because there is so much sort of false accounting and manipulation that can come along with it. And one of the ways in which this is uh, sort of uh, policymakers and, and diplomats around the world have been trying to sort this out is by developing uh, like a, it's, it's, it's essentially like a global carbon market under article six of the Paris agreement, um, which is, big and scary. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions about it. Not necessarily, I'm not in a position to pass judgment either way, but what does make me nervous is that a lot of these countries are making decisions on net zero and deciding how they're not, how they're going to get there, but saying they're going to get there. And, and, and we don't really know at this point because this global carbon market hasn't been established yet. And the parameters haven't been established yet. Um, it was something that was supposed to be discussed and I believe finalized at COP 25 this past um, December or November at this point, um, and it, and it, and and they couldn't come to they 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 couldn't determine what the actual parameters were. They couldn't sort of come up with finalized text. So they were like, okay, no worries, we'll push it to COP twenty six. We'll deal with it next year in Glasgow. It'll be fine. Well, COP twenty six isn't happening this year. COP twenty six isn't happening until next year. Um, meanwhile, you have countries having to submit their new updated targets. You have countries that are developing carbon reduction plans right now. Um, and they're all being based on this idea that there will be a global carbon market, but we don't know what that looks like yet. We don't know what the accounting looks like yet. We don't know how easy it's going to be for these nations to double dip and how, how, how easy it's going to be for countries to be able to say, I'm a country and, and I reduce my emissions because I have a bunch of tree plantations that I've put up and I'm reducing my carbon that way. And then Stefan comes in and wants to purchase the reduction credits from my plantation. What's to stop both of us from, from, from claiming that reduction, if that makes sense. And at this point, we don't know if there's anything stopping people from claiming that reduction. So, so that's one of, yeah, that's, that's the risk around net zero is 
who who's calling the shots here? Who is saying what the rules are? How do we know that net zero really means net zero if the accounting is being done properly? Um, wouldn't it all be so much easier if we just actually reduced our emissions the way we're supposed to? Yeah, I think I think that is such an important uh, fine point to put on this because when you there's you can imagine a world and as ridiculous as it is where the entire world is net zero and yet emissions are continuing to rise. That one un, unquestionably is a world that can exist. You know, it might have emission rising as quickly as they currently are, but. The, to me, there's almost no question that the world cannot exist. And if I, if I can provide one last example to sort of expand on your example of, of, of what the Canadian government could do in this scenario, depending on accounting. You could have a scenario where the Canadian government is uh, is is allowing for the Vista coal mine to continue, selling that coal to to China. China is then using that coal to burn, uh, to, to, you know, to burn to create power that is then creating goods that are being sold back to Canada, and and then being used in the Canadian market, and the Canadian government could be claiming that it itself is say carbon neutral because our forests are offsetting the production of the coal. Why and and all the rest of those emissions are not our fault despite the fact that we are not only supplying the, the carbon to create it, we are then purchasing it on the other side. And we can, using the same kind of accounting that you've referenced, we can avoid both the responsibility for that carbon emissions on both sides of this, rather than just, you know, decreasing our consumption and leaving this fossil fuels in the ground. Yeah, quite literally passing the buck to developing nations right now, because because of course they're still the ones doing the production. Um, and so it means that, that we're passing the carbon back to them. It also means that we're likely passing actual financial costs to them because if a country, I'm, if, if you weren't able to meet your theoretical net zero target at a given point in the future, we don't know what the ramifications are gonna be for that going forward. Um, and then something that, that I meant to mention earlier when we were talking about sort of, um, carbon sequestration technology and how much of it is just kind of based around the idea of, of, of afforestation or, or reforestation and how oftentimes, and I know this is going to sound tacked on because we don't have time to get into it, oftentimes results in, in land grabs with indigenous peoples and nations because it means that we're going in and we're saying we need to plant 2 billion trees, for instance, where are you going to do it? You're going to do it on land where people are disenfranchised, where they don't have a lot of, um, support in, in, in their land claim where maybe uh, density is really low at this point. So it's easy for, for a government to go in and say, okay, great, we're going to take this empty patch of land and plant a bunch of trees here. And it doesn't matter if that land is theoretically owned and taken care of by an indigenous nation. So, so that's what we see a lot. It's, it's why there's a lot of debate um, in the climate activist policy world about um, quote unquote, nature-based solutions, which is a phrase that we haven't really used on this show yet, but oftentimes pertains to land-based uh, afforestation, reforestation, uh, carbon sequestration uh, methods and, and processes. So, so that nature-based solutions is, is, yeah, it's contentious right now because you get a lot of environmental organizations really lauding it as the future of carbon sequestration. Meanwhile, you get a lot of indigenous organizations and communities saying, wait, 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 hold up, whose land are you reforesting or whose land is is, is going to provide this nature-based solution here so um it is a fraught topic my friends yes and and uh, uh, the one last point on that I'll, I'll throw before we go to music break is 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 that 
what we actually see when you look at even the comparing, you know, what is quote, quote unquote, sort of like, you know, uh, park untouched land uh, versus land that it be, that is stewarded by indigenous peoples, as you actually see that land that is stewarded by indigenous peoples can and it, like is more biodiverse and can there and can also store more carbon than than if you kick people off. And so you you could see a, a scenario where not only are you are you infringing on the land rights and enforcing the, the, these people off the land, you also might actually be overall reducing the amount of emissions just so you can quote unquote count it for the ability to capitalize it on this market. You know this is this is the when you see the larger concerns and larger conversations about the concerns of of of, of capitalizing nature or, or making monetizing nature, these are some of the issues that you run into very very quickly. Mm-hmm.